Welcome to another episode of The Southern Roost, a member of the Flyways and Highways Collective. If you are looking for the show about what's happening in the world of waterfowl, you are in the right place. From the sportsman's paradise capital of the world, I am your host, Aaron Head. Join with me in this endeavor is my co-host, Mr. Ryan Berthelot. Join us as we keep a pulse on the duck beat across our flyways. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Southern Roost. We got my partner here, Mr. Ryan Berthelot. How's How it going? Excellent. And then also to introduce our guest speaker, we got Mr. Owen Best. How's it going? Oh, pretty good. Uh, you want me to give some background information on myself? Yeah, go ahead and all jump right. in, give your title and all that good stuff. All right. So I am the North American Waterfowl Management Plan Coordinator, uh, NAWAMP for short, for the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. I office here in Lafayette, Louisiana, but I work pretty much statewide on both public and private lands. My focus is primarily waterfowl habitat and management, but I do some waterfowl surveys, some waterfowl captures, and other associated tasks that come along with the job. I've worked here for LDWF for about two years now, and before that, I was a WMA manager or wildlife management area manager in Texas for Texas Parks and Wildlife. I managed the Justin Hurst WMA down south of Houston for about five years, and I've Graduated from Stephen F. Austin with a bachelor's in forestry and wildlife management, but my whole life I kind of grew up in forestry and outdoors and doing all this stuff, and so here I am. That's freaking awesome. So I know the way I know you is because met you over here banding through Paul Link, a common denominator, and uh, got together, hunted with you a couple times so far, and it's been great. Great having you in the blind for sure. So you listed a whole bunch of acronyms now. So I, I want to break down for the audience kind of, I guess, pyramid of how like losing wild, wild department of wildlife and fisheries the duck hunting or mm-hmm. the duck research field part of the arm of that works and where you fall in that line that's okay so ldwf um is broken into a bunch of different divisions i guess i'm in the wildlife division there's there's a couple other ones like forestry fisheries inland coastal etc so we're in wildlife and then between under wildlife they break it down into like wma and species management so I'm under species management. So it's LDWF, wildlife, species management, and the waterfowl program. So I'm the assistant to the waterfowl program leader. So basically number two when it comes to waterfowl in, in Louisiana. That makes a bunch of sense. Awesome. All right. So we'll keep moving right along here. So talk about you grew up in the outdoors and forestry industry and always been outside hunting, of course. Do you have an earliest hunt memory or earliest waterfowl memory in particular? Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up hunting and fishing. I was out with my dad before I could walk um hunting in the deer stand hunting pigs etc but the earliest waterfowl memory uh southeast texas the kind of the jasper area we were out on a oxbow lake that had been cut off from the river for a long time i was probably four or five years old and shooting wood ducks back when the limit was two birds a peak two birds per person and of course i wasn't shooting but the biggest thing i remember i can still picture it exactly in my mind the swirl of water and my dad getting super mad as an otter came up, grabbed his wood duck drake, and swam away. I'll never forget that. That was that was pretty funny. That's awesome. Yeah, we've had a couple of otters steal some ducks in uh, me and Ryan's career hunting together for sure. So we're very familiar. I've had hawks mostly than anything. Hawks and sometimes some gators every now and then. If yeah. I still a woman in the early season, I'll get a gator. I think I had an otter one time uh, in Pineville, and I think you and I have had an otter a couple of times as well. But right. God, dude, like it's. It's a nightmare. Welcome to South Louisiana. I mean, the marsh has all the all the predators. All right. And so you talked briefly about your dad and um, being grown up in, in the outdoors, essentially. So what led you to pursue a career in waterfowl biology directly? 
So my dad is a forester. Um, he's always been in forestry. He worked for Temple Inland, uh, old company in Southeast Texas that owned a bunch of land. He was big in hardwood management and he kind of made his own career in that field. Well, I wanted to work outdoors, but I don't want anyone to ever say that what I have came from somebody else. Um, I, so I didn't want to follow in his footsteps and have people say, Oh, you just got that job because of your dad's. So I went into wildlife management to make forge my own path. And that way, anything that I accomplish is due to me and my integrity and work ethic and stuff like that. I wanted to make my own name. I love that. I found us through the field of pharmacy and just in this field of science in general. You got two types of people. You got the ones that go into it, just wanted to blaze their own trail. Mm-hmm. Really three types of people. Then you got another ones that are kind of, I'll call them the hybrids that, you know, maybe their parents are both pharmacists that came from money or they came from something like that to where they had a little help along the way. But they just kind of like, you know, like for example, nothing wrong with it. Like a kid takes over a pharmacy from his, from his parents. Mm-hmm. It's the same different thing. And they also got the ones that are just kind of like full, full cradle. You know, <laughs> I consider myself a hybrid, you know, so I get it. Totally get it. Oh, and what about Chris Nicolai's wood duck research in Nevada? Really yeah, so I was I was telling Aaron about this on a hunt, which is the reason why you asked. But so the first paper I ever had to write in college, we just had to look up a peer-reviewed article and write a synopsis of what it was about. And I've always loved hunting ducks, but I wasn't super into it whenever I first got into college. I was mostly a deer hunter, a little bit of turkey, but ducks were still fairly new. And I read a couple different articles and I ended up, on Chris Nicolai's study in Nevada on wood ducks, which is really a closed population. So he was not a whole lot of influx and outflux. So he was able to do a whole lot of stuff with that, changing limits. He knows the genetics of every duck in that population, all sorts of stuff. And so when I wrote my paper on that, I was like, I want to handle wood ducks. I want to work with wood ducks, et cetera. And eventually, kind of like we'll get into in this podcast, that morphed away from wood ducks, but that, that was what really got me started down the water field, waterfowl field. Yeah. Awesome. So like uh, compared to Louisiana, the state of Nevada, they don't migrate through like, we'll get band recoveries in Louisiana from like Wisconsin and all that kind of stuff. Basically band recoveries in Nevada, it's just band in Nevada. Yeah. So they, in Nevada, they have hardly any egress and ingress from other populations. Okay. They do have some, of course, but it's very, very limited compared to here where they just come up and down the Mississippi river. I wonder how they can survive in that habitat because, like, I've been out west. I've been to those deserts. There's not a lot of, like, you know, timber and habitat they would use down here. They had to adapt to something. Like juniper tree holes? I guess that's what they would do. It's been over a decade since I read that paper, (laughs) so I cannot (laughs) tell you. We're not here for that, so we'll get into the the beef while we're here. But it was a cool little sidebar for sure. Um, And so then we got the story of how you grew up hunting. Want to do waterfowl? You start off in Texas, but then now you're number two man on the totem pole when it comes to waterfowl and ducks in Louisiana. So how did that transition occur? So, of course, I was born and raised in Texas. Um, went to school in Texas. Got the first job in Texas with TPWD. Managing that WMA, I was kind of jack of all trades. I, I managed deer populations, deer hunts, hog hunts, dove um, waterfowl, fishing, like we, we did it all. And also a lot of infrastructure and grounds maintenance and stuff like that. So I wasn't, you know, I'm doing some waterfowl stuff. It's a premier duck WMA on the Texas coast. It's awesome. The, the duck hunt's really good whenever they have birds, et cetera, but you're not solely focused on waterfowl. You're having to kind of dabble in all that other stuff, which is not what I wanted to do. Always wanted to be a part of a waterfowl program, which 
this job opened up. Um, had a guy that works here in Louisiana contact me and say, hey, you need to put in for this. Saw that I'm at minimums and put in for you. Freaking fantastic. All right, so now we're going to get into the reason why we are here. So we'll get we'll refresh this topic at the end of the podcast for sure, kind of in the conclusion page. As a Ryan here remind me to go over the reg changes kind of kind of at the end. So for those of have may may or may not have read the Louisiana hunting regs for the season, especially if you're a local Louisiana duck hunter, model ducks will be changing this year. So this is kind of why we got Owen on board because I don't know about y'all, but co-hunting coastal Louisiana as our main backyard thing. Of course, you know me and Ryan, we go out of state, we do a couple other things across the flyways, but this is our own backyard hunting, our quick hunt areas, the Gulf Coast of Louisiana. So model ducks have always been in, like primo. We're going to get in a little bit of some places they're not primo. Some people don't understand what they are, et cetera. We'll get into that later in the podcast. But to me, I was really kind of upset personally when I saw the model duck season changing just from a, I guess, a selfish hunter perspective. Because that's like the really the only time you can really kill these suckers is towards the beginning of the season. And just they're always a special treat for any bag that we hunt if you're especially really into the marsh field of Louisiana. And, you know, like, I think for me the, the issue with model ducks is they're the most frustrating bird to hunt. Correct. You can possibly find it. That turkeys makes them special. I will even admit turkeys in that the category as well. Just because, again, like you're going to have to specialize yourself so much to hunt them. And you're right. I think the first 15 days of that season, after that, they wisen up to a point where they're going to, I mean, call shy, decoy shy, pothole shy in some situations, right? So I, I we're looking at something major here for Louisiana hunters this season, and I think that may continue to carry on as well. For sure. It's going to be some big changes. So getting into the beef of our discussion, it's model ducks. So, Owens, so I guess why model ducks and why have you had a slight career focus on model ducks, especially here in Louisiana? So there in Texas where I worked, I was on the coast. Um, the challenge about working on the coast is you're managing for wintering waterfowl that migrate down but you're also managing for resident species, the model duck. They don't migrate. They don't go north and south, east and west. They they live on the same areas where they were born and raised. They stay there their whole lives. Uh, so my focus really centered on the model duck. Living and working on the Gulf Coast, you get to experience some of the best duck hunting in the States, but model ducks are super important. So here in Louisiana, we have a couple resident species. We have the model duck, the fulvous whistling duck, the black belly whistling duck, and the wood duck. Of those, three of them depend on rice, prairie, and coastal marshes or wetlands for their whole annual cycle. And the model duck, to me, is one of the coolest ones to work with. So I've I've really grown to love the challenge of managing all, managing all these aspects together. So I think everybody knows that model duck is in some way, shape, or form similar to a mallard, right? Um what makes them different and, and what are we looking at as far as how closely related they are to mallards? Yeah. So model ducks are one of four mallard like species here in the lower 48. You have the mallard duck, the black duck, the Mexican duck, and the model duck. Uh, we're really going to focus on the model ducks. So there are two distinct model duck populations. You have the Florida model duck, which is an Anas fulvigula fulvigula, and the Gulf Coast model duck, which is Anas fulvigula maculosa. So they're very, they look very similar, but they're completely separated by time and space. Like mm-hmm. there's less than 1% interchange between those two populations. Wow. So that they are distinct. They're, they're not the same bird whatsoever. And model ducks here in the Western Gulf Coast and model ducks in Florida have a whole different array of challenges that face both of them. So they're very, very distinct in that. Uh, Florida birds are threatened more by hybridization with domesticated mallards. 
a lot of released mallards from people buying them at Tractor Supply and then releasing them, or the released birds up further north in the northeast that then migrate down and hang, find out that model ducks are pretty and hang out with them. So, <laughs> I mean, I think they're pretty, so I can understand yeah, that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, there is also an experimental population in South Carolina that seems to be doing well. I'm not super familiar with it. Um, and then a historical experimental population in North Texas. I know absolutely nothing about those birds. I haven't heard anything about them. I don't know if they're still there. I highly doubt it. Uh, I just never heard anything when I was there in Texas. So, yeah, the uh, real quick on that South Carolina. So were they Florida transplants from that section or were they are transplants from the Texas Gulf Coast, Louisiana I region? could not answer that question. I, I, I just know that they're there. I know I've read a couple articles written on research projects over there, but I could not tell you where they came from. I would, I would surmise that they're probably Florida's. Just, I mean, given that yeah, like Atlantic space. seaboard, right? Right. Um, crazy to think that South Carolina is a place they would go with that, though. Because I feel like you know, like for me, Biloxi. Like Mississippi Gulf Coast would probably be the place I try to transplant. I guess maybe the Gulf Coast population a little bit further east from us because you can still probably handle that. I would think, but South Carolina's pretty far north. Thinking about that, I mean, they probably put it like for me traveling to South Carolina relatively recently. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was where the first rice production was in America, just about. So it's, it's there's a lot of commonality to the South Carolina like seaboard. I, I guess. It's not called the Gulf Coast for them, but they have a similar habitat. Yeah. It's like salt marshes, tidal marshes, brackish marshes. Similar yeah, all that, to all the, that inland marsh, right? And the rice production. It's called very the similar. Yeah, and that's another point he made. Like I'm thinking of model ducks in terms of like marsh use only, but they're like you said, they're pretty diverse in the fact that they'll use ag fields, rice fields, things like that as well. There, I mean, there's there's birds in Texas that were two, three hundred miles from the coast yeah. in the kind of rice prairie and even. Uh, you ever heard of the Atwater's Prairie Chicken? There's a refuge over there in Texas. It's all upland prairie with a few potholes. And I used to, I, man, I used to catch so many model ducks up there on those potholes. Oh, interesting. Well, awesome. So moving to the next segment, talked about kind of what they are. Why are they non-migratory? That's one thing I've always asked myself. And we're going to have some other guests on doing this model duck mini series we got going on here. But from Owen's perspective, so why are they non-migratory? So first, when you talk about non-migratory, you need to understand why birds migrate. Okay. Uh, migration is behavior to combat food, about, food availability. Um, basically, as growing season ends and photo period becomes shorter, plants and insects wither, die, burrow underground. So birds have to move around to find food. Um, they follow kind of a food boom. So large amounts of invertebrates become available up there in the prairie pothole region during the spring and summer months due to the warmer weather and the start of the growing season. The same thing happens in South America during the opposite period. So that's why birds, um, especially neotropical migrants, your little warblers and vireos and stuff like that, that's why they fly so far down into Mexico is to follow that invertebrate bloom where they have the food that they need. Model ducks don't migrate, and they adapted to that because the Louisiana-Texas coastal marshes have food availability year-round. You have plant production during the summer and fall. You have invertebrates year-round. You have submerged aquatic vegetation. Like They they don't have to leave. There's no reason for them to go find food elsewhere, so they, they didn't adapt to migrate. Awesome. Okay. One interesting fact, um, model ducks are also noted as one of the most carnivorous dabbling ducks in North America, and that's mostly due to their non-migratory status, so they can't eat seeds and plant matter all year long. 
Um, so sometimes they have to focus on invertebrates and they found that up to 40% of their diet can involve snails, fish, uh, mollusks, mollusks, inverts, stuff like that. Fascinating. Okay. So now moving into uh, habitat selection. So we kind of briefly talked about it, but I guess they are kind of, they will adapt to slight changes, of course, but often the same region. Like you can drive from I-10 to the coast. You can go from a little bit of piney woods. You can go to some ridges that have oak trees on there. And you got crawfish farms dispersed, interdispersed throughout everywhere. Of course, you got salt marshes, freshwater marshes, brackish washes, marshes, and everything in between. So kind of go through what a model duck's, I guess, what you know about habitat selection, maybe like what they're pyramid it what's their favorite thing they like to be in and what have they adapted to that you've seen in your studies or time yeah so they have a wide range of different habitats that they reside in uh, most of that is dependent on the time of year dealing with that food availability that we just talked about so they they will move and change habitats to do that but they're not technically migrating they're not leaving the let's say zip code that they've been born and raised in just like you may drive to mcdonald's on the east side of town one night and then go to canes on the west side another night Okay. You just kind of move around as long as the habitat provides the four critical components of habitat, which are food, water, shelter, space. So as long as they have those, they're going to they're going to hang out in it. Um, I've found I fly a lot of surveys here in Louisiana. I've found that probably one of the highest concentrations of model ducks is typically in that intermediate to freshwater marsh. It just has okay. so much food availability throughout the year. Uh, if you know White Lake Wetland Conservation Area, that area, I count more model ducks than almost anywhere else during the winter. They're just everywhere. Them and mallards. It's it's pretty crazy to see that number of model ducks around there. That's freaking awesome. I know I love going to White Lake uh, for sure, that area. Uh, I have some connections. I hunt Pecan Island right south of there. So we'll see model ducks fly over all the time in, in greater numbers than I see in other parts of the state, but they don't ever stop. I never get one in Pecan Island yet. You know, I hunt the southeast portion more than you guys probably do and like thinking about it now north of lake pontchartrain there's quite a few that hang around those first for that freshwater marshes like he's mentioning that in brackish water mm-hmm. they didn't like i mean i've seen them as far as uh, far south as pointish in in the past you see those good numbers but i don't know what it is about those freshwater marshes but they tend to hold to them pretty tight for the entire year and i don't know if i'm seeing the same like maybe three or four pairs but i'm i can see a dozen a day easily yeah, there's some areas there on the southeast side of the state during the winter that they'll stack up. Biloxi, we count a lot. Passalute, you know how that freshwater is right on the edge of saltwater. That's just really great habitat for them. They'll stack up there. And then kind of the north shore, north shore of like uh, Lake Bourne and some places like that and the, where the freshwater is flowing in, they'll, they'll really hang out there. Awesome. All right, moving into model duck harvest. So I guess I want to break this down and well, I'll let you roll with this however you want to, but like past, present, and future, obviously focusing on Louisiana, but if you have any Texas experience since we're right there neighbors and it's the same population, that'd be good to know too. Okay. So model ducks have always been a part of the bag. Uh, post-1966 is about when I was able to find regulations back to. From 1966 to 2008, it was three birds a day wow. or thereabouts. Wow, it may have changed a little bit. I didn't look at every single year, but it basically followed that three three birds a day. 2008, um, Louisiana still had that bag limit of three a day, and Texas had one per day with the whole season being open. But the whole but the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service required the states to reduce harvest by 30 percent. 
the way that we tried to accomplish that, and I say we, I was not even in college at that point. So <laughs> right. wildlife agencies back <laughs> then, <laughs> they decided in Louisiana to go to one per day. So eliminate two per day, basically. And then Texas went to a five-day closure. In Louisiana, that resulted in about a 19% reduction. So it didn't quite meet that 30%, but it was pretty close. Um, and then, like I said, Texas closed the first five days because that was that's really when the majority of model ducks are shot. Like like you said, they're kind of dumb, especially the hatchier birds. They're not used to. They haven't flown all the way from Canada getting shot at the whole way. This is their first five days to see gunfire, so they're really susceptible to it. Uh, this continued up until this season that we're talking about coming up right now. Um, we're going to change the regulations, and I'll talk about that in a second. But the reason why we're doing that, super important, there's been a 65% reduction in harvest since 2008, but there's also been a 65 or thereabouts reduction in populations. Right. So, and the crazy thing is, I've just asked about this through previous hunting hunting times. We don't have like a... For example, we know there's, I'm kind of making this up, there's like 8 million mallards in the North American population plus, right? We don't have like a baseline number for model ducks, do we? Like a, Yes. We do? Okay. So we have a baseline. So in 2008, as part of these um, limitations on harvest, Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries and Texas Parks and Wildlife worked with the feds to establish a model duck breeding population survey. Okay. So it's sort of like the BPOP that you hear about in Canada that estimates the breeding pairs. That's what we do for model ducks during April, same time as they're flying it up north. April 14th, I believe, is peak nesting. So we try to fly the, that week. That way we can count how many females there are, how many pairs, and how many grouped males there are. That kind of gives us a baseline. And then model ducks are also the most surveyed bird here in Louisiana. We count them five different times. So in April, wow. September, during the teal season count, November, December, January. So we count them a lot of times. So we we have a pretty good estimate of what the population's doing, and everything is showing that 65 to 70% decline over the last 12 years. So like what's – do you have like the – not the exact, exact figure, but do you have like a rough estimate of like how many model ducks there are? Is it like 20,000? Is it 30,000? So the January survey this past year – I believe was like 18,000 birds. Holy cow. Which, you know, in 2008, I, I'd be lying to give you an exact number, but I think it was like 100,000. Like it was it was a lot of birds. And, and this January was the lowest on record. So we haven't run the numbers on our April survey. I feel like it was a little bit lower than last year. So I'm kind of excited to see what it actually was. I fly the helicopter per- portion, so I'm the visual correction factor. So I saw quite a few, but according to the plane, they didn't see a whole lot. So the population may have even plummeted some more. So yourself, so I want to reiterate that part. Roughly, this of course is all rough estimates, but this this is all public knowledge. You can go find the research articles online. Yeah, we we release the surveys right. in a in a report. There's been you know we had to submit all this to the feds. So all this is public record. You can find. So yeah, this so we can go and look up these facts probably after the episode. But I want to reiterate the fact that in 2008 that was 100,000 birds roughly, and then we're talking about in this past January under 20k. Like that's a yeah. That's and like I, a, and I'll email you the <laughs> the numbers. That way you can put this into your blog and have an exact number. I'm just trying to recall right. from this memory. Is, but this is just like a one fifth decline. Well, on a point that's ridiculous. Or like that's a four fifths decline. So we've had a reduction in harvest. Significant reduction in harvest without a regulation change. Yeah. 
we've still seen a decline, a significant decline, probably almost, I mean, a very alarming decline for anybody. Um, so what, what's the issue you think? So habitat. Yeah. I mean, that's the main issue, but let's talk about what the regulatory regulatory changes are yeah. real quick, what we're doing now. So in 2023, 2024, we're going to close the first 15 days of harvest. Mm-hmm. So what that does is it's going to eliminate 50% of the harvest. The first 15 days, model ducks get hammered. Um, so we're trying to eliminate an extra 50% on top of the 65% that it's already gone down. And no, hunting is not additive. That's always an argument that people will have is whether it's compensatory or whether it's additive. The only reason we're allowed to have seasons is is compensatory for the most part. And what's real quick before we move on from that, let's break down the definition because I've only recently learned it within like the last two years of me duck hunting. Compensatory versus additive. Break that down, I guess, roughly. So compensatory means ducks and all birds are undergoing an extreme physical event to migrate. So a lot of them are going to die regardless through Predators killing them through exhaustion, starvation, getting lost, etc. There, there's going to be birds that die. So hunting that's compensatory kills some of those birds or reduces the population to where they don't reach that point of starvation, etc. So you're you're taking birds out that were going to theoretically die anyways. Additive says that every single one of those ducks that was produced up north is going to make it back to the north, which is not true. They're, they're going to be ducks right. that die. There's whether we hunt it or not. Whether we hunt it That's or not. That's the key. Okay. Just, just look at populations of neotropical migrants. Look at shorebird populations. There's always mortality events associated. Like when they're coming back from Mexico and they hit a cold front with a 30-mile-an-hour north wind, you don't want to see the waters out there in the Gulf. It'll be full of brightly colored neotropical migrants that weren't able to make it to shore. Um, so – Additive is saying that we're killing birds that we're going to make it. We're taking away from the population. And there's a lot of different arguments on which is true. There's a argument for both. I think it's somewhere in the middle. Especially so real quick to point that out. So we're talking about the migratory event, which is not happening in model ducks. Yeah. So do you think there lies a more additive effect on model ducks than compensatory in this situation since they don't go through the stressors of migration? That would be hard to say. I don't – I mean, they're still going to go through predators. They're still going to go through starvation, power lines, wind farm. I mean, there's there's right, a right. lot of stuff out there that will kill them. So I don't think that it's necessarily additive, but that's why we're reducing the harvest. We're trying to keep a few extra birds – to reproduce next year on top of a lot of the other stuff that we're, that we're working on. So. Okay. That makes sense. Do you have something, Ron? You want to interject? You're good. So, okay. So yeah, to repoint that out people. So we have like a four fifths potential reduction since 2008. And so what we're doing is we're closing the first 15 days that cannot be harvested. So this is the same thing. Everyone was up in arms about the Dogri, our scop closure. So literally at the same time as Dogri open up, you can shoot model ducks. That's a good way to remember it. Yeah, first. and and we, we did that to strive for more simplistic regulations and consistency. Basically, we don't want to say, all right, let's close model ducks for the first 10 days this year and then reassess it and close it for 11 days next year and then 15 days the year after. We're taking a bigger bite out of that then we absolutely need to so that we're not changing those regulations every year. Everybody, at least in the central flyway, our pintail limit fluctuated 
every year for like four years in a row. And it was super frustrating to try to tell hunters like, hey, you can't shoot two this year. It's just one. So the less change, the better, the easier it is to remember with the scalp limit. When you can shoot two scalp, you can shoot your model better. Okay, perfect. All right, so um, we kind of talked about the past with model ducks moving back into the overall, I guess, present model duck situation. Um, kind of touching on that back to our main main topic we got going on here. So we talked about how it's declining 11% year over year, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty much. And then you have, uh, I know you have experience in Texas. So talk about what's going on over there. So they're experiencing declines too. And I wouldn't say that I'm the expert over there now. I've been out for two years, right. but they're experiencing about a 9% decline every year. Their population is doing a little bit better as far as maintaining stable populations. But a lot of that has to do with the habitat. Louisiana's losing coastline like crazy, whereas Texas is not. So I, that's taking a good bit of habitat away from them every year compared to Texas, where the habitat's remaining mostly stable except for new urbanization. Gotcha. Um, so moving into really want to touch on that real quick. So both states are losing coastline, the right? Is this Louisiana is like way more exponential, I mm-hmm. guess, than Texas. So was there ever a point to where I know we have some a shared borders? So it's probably there's not a Texas population of model ducks, there's not a Louisiana. It's no. all counted as like the same roughly. Yeah, we're managing the same population. We're just right. going about it two different ways. Texas is staying with the five day closure that they've had since two thousand eight. That reduced their harvest by quite a bit. After those five days, the birds are very well educated. I think if we can show success with this 15-day closure and have some population kind of revert. Reversal. Yeah. yeah, Then maybe Texas might close a few extra days to help out. It just kind of depends on what we see. So this isn't going to be a forever 15-day closure. It's going to have to be reevaluated at some point. So... What LDWF is going to do is in three years, so after the 2026 season, we're going to look at harvest information through the wing bee. We're going to look at population estimates through our surveys that we're, fl- we're flying, and we'll be able to see if this is working or not. And then we'll reevaluate what we're doing. Awesome. And so, and I want to reiterate that 18,000 back in the January server, that is just the Louisiana section though, right? Yes. That's so I spent one of the old total population yeah. of the subspecies. Texas and Louisiana both fly that April BPOP. So we'll know what the total population is as soon as the feds get us those numbers back. And gotcha. I can send that to you whenever okay. we figure it out, just to look at the past few years versus this year. Um, one interesting thing talking about the BPOP survey is Louisiana had a huge rain event the week that we were flying. Okay. So one of the main things that I've seen cause nesting failure is inundation. So heavy rainfall during the nesting season that floods the marsh. There was 10 inches of water over so much of the marsh when we were flying that survey. So there was, I can't tell you how many model duck nests got flooded out. So, Hopefully they re-nest and they will do that. Okay. But that could potentially hurt the population. If you have that multiple years in a row, it can it can really start to hurt. So yeah, what you got? Are they good re-nesters usually? About as good as any other bird. Your your success is always best the first nest. Right. You put so they put so much energy into that first nest. After that, they can be successful. They can be unsuccessful. It just kind of depends on the hen. It depends on the habitat that she's in. Typically, that first nest is in the best habitat as far as 
getting away from predators, getting structural complexity of the vegetation, et cetera. If it floods and she's got to move higher ground, it may not be as good. She may be in a cattle pasture that's overgrazed, which the coyotes and skunks and yep. possums can find that nest a lot easier. So success okay. goes down the more renesting attempts there are. But you'd rather them renest and not try it all. There's some yeah. species of ducks that are just like one time, all right, I'm out. It'll well, I mean, work. there's there's some ducks that put all their energy into it. There's some eiders that, you know, sea ducks that they literally sit on the nest. The second they lay that last egg, they're on it until they hatch because it's still below freezing up there. Right. If they get off the nest, the clutch is gone. It's you have gone. to pick them up off the nest to check the eggs. So they're putting everything <laughs> into it. They're going to die on that nest if they don't hatch. That's that's for sea ducks. I'm going to reiterate that. Yeah. So um, I know they have several studies talking about prairie pothole region of Canada, and it's a common theme. If you add water, you add ducks. Mm -hmm. So would you consider that a same parallel? So, for example, we had a, a big drought last year. Hunting was great in Louisiana as it concentrated the ducks, in my opinion, but – and so you think model ducks like a, a balance between you need to have some ridges in the marsh they can nest on, of course, but you also need to have water close by like any duck needs. Is there a similar parallelism with like water equals more ducks for model ducks or is it more a balance? I would say it's more of a balance. These birds adapted and kind of evolved to the average rainfall in this area. So when you get below that, it affects them negatively. When you get above that, it affects them negatively. So you really need it to be balanced. You need that dry ground and you need the broodering habitat. And that only really stays that way if you're around average rainfall. Interesting. Okay. All right. So moving on here. So, you know, we talked about the 15-day closure to duck seasons. And the first time I remember seeing it was the scop closure a few years ago. Uh, Louisiana. Have either of you guys heard of that before? Not in my lifetime. I mean, I thought that was uh, unique. I think like it's not just 15 days for me, but I think like any partial season closure at the time, right? Like I don't think I've ever heard of it. I've heard of like canvasbacks being closed for the entire season before. Uh, I think pintails maybe for a season or two, but I've never heard of like, okay, 15 days, we're going to shut it down. For, for across single that species, like, yeah. that's the key there. So, like, my father-in-law talks about the 30, 30, like, three ducks, 30 duck days yeah. back for Mississippi Flyway back, what, 80s or something like that. Which and they is always, a wild thought, right, like, to right. begin with. Like, you got to really love duck hunting to stick with that for a decade. For but, sure. Yeah, the first time I had ever heard of a season closure growing up in Texas, when I started duck hunting, it was it was closed on model ducks for the first five days. So this isn't a totally new concept to me. But the 15 days, that's a lot. I mean, that's going to affect hunters. That's definitely going to affect harvest. I mean, that's the whole reason we're doing it is to affect harvest. But if you're trying to hunt a model duck, those first 10, 15 days, that was when you wanted to do it. Correct. Absolutely. Like, I think I went back in my records, and I think I've actually killed one model duck past the first 15 days of the season in my lifetime. And it was uh, very weird circumstances. It wasn't with us. It was a oh, cave myself okay. in the southeast portion. It was a public land spot I won't give away. But like, it was uh, late January, super foggy. Every single bird was disoriented. It was my first pintail that day also, by the way. Separate, okay. Fun story there. But um, just super disoriented. And that's all they were, right? Like, they just came across the decoy spread. They were about to light because I guess just couldn't see what they were doing. And... You know, we, we killed them. That was mid-January. Besides that, most of them have been first split birds, right? Yeah, I know for me, like, if you've ever hunted the coastal marsh in teal season, the amount of model ducks that try to land in your decoys is unreal. 
They, oh yeah, that was, they, I was gonna make that comment eventually. They that just have no I've idea. I've seen some crazy things until season. Not like you know, never broken law or anything like that, to my knowledge, the best of my ability or anything. But I've I've had some live decoys, aka model ducks, land in the spread. I've never any that will never happen during a big duck season. Never. I don't think I've had like a cupped up model duck come Dude, in. It's hard enough ever to get, in big duck season. It's, it's hard enough passing. to get model ducks to even like fly across water. During big duck season, right? yeah, they right. don't <laughs> they don't want to fly over water. <laughs> they, they, they know better at that point. I've never seen, like I said, I mentioned that before, and like I, I'm going to reiterate that. I do think there's probably no more difficult bird that I can think of to hunt because number one, where you have to go, right? You're highly localized, um, highly specialized, highly specialized. You have You're going to have to make the comment before birds, is you have to sell out for you yeah, you have to sell it. out for model ducks. And like my thing is, you have to pattern them, and I think you mentioned that. We talked before, like you have to pattern these birds in ways you'd pattern a turkey, and the payoff probably isn't the same like culinarily, like you know, meat wise. But I mean, it's still a trophy bird nonetheless. But golly, man, like you really have to want that bird to to achieve that goal for sure. Uh, real quickly, you mentioned how like you grew up with the five day initial closure in Texas throughout your whole lifetime, and model ducks they exist. They're like from in Texas, Port Arthur to Brownsville, right? Mm-hmm. So what do those Brownsville hunters do when they got Mexican ducks dispersed and everything? How did they, So how does that all work? The regulations in Texas, it calls it a dusky duck. Okay. So any dark mallard-like duck is closed the first five days. That's Mexican wow. and model. Okay. And this is safe. Y'all kept it safe. Unicorn black duck that shows up. It covers all of those. Uh, like mallard hen too as well would fall there, in that theoretically? No, that... That's There's a lot enough. of people who don't shoot mallard hens because they're worried about that. Correct. Yeah. Um, especially down there in that marsh, you know, it's one bird per person. Even after the five-day closure, I can't tell you how many times when I was young, duck hunter wasn't really good at identifying birds. I would hear the the mallard grunt or the mallard hen quacking, and I'm like, oh, they're modeled. So I'd shoot one, and then when I go get it, it's a mallard hen. And I'm like, crap, I could have shot both of them. Uh, and to be clear, Mexican ducks – Look extremely similar to model ducks. Right? Yeah, so yeah, very similar. model ducks are super, super dark. I mean, not quite as dark as a black duck, as the name entails, but they're super dark. They're called the black mallard for a reason. Um, but the way that you distinguish them from the Mexican duck is the model duck has what's called the speculum. The secondaries on the wing is kind of a bluish purple to green. Just depends on how you look at it but mostly purple on model ducks. And there might be a little bit of a trailing edge of white on the bottom of that speculum. Mexican ducks have the same wing as a mallard. It's darker, but it has the leading white stripe and the trailing white stripe of a mallard. And that speculum on a mallard is usually bluish, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, bluish to green. Some purple. It really just depends on the sun. But typically, I've seen more model ducks be purple and green. Mallards are more blue and green. Yeah. And then Mexicans are more of that purplish blue. Yeah. Which I've, I've never, I don't think I could ever rely on that myself. I think the model top shot all look different in the speculum. Oh, yeah. Right? Like the one we shot this year was mm-hmm. green, the ones in my freezer right, right now. Um, and there's the genetic study going on at UTEP right now that's, you when y'all talk to him, you'll find out some really interesting stuff. But like the white on the wing means nothing. Yeah, and that's what's crazy. Which, like, that, and that, to me, like that is the number one thing, right? I think for anecdotal uh, identifications among hunters, like that is it, right? Like black ducks, no white. Model ducks have one white bar and with a little trailing edge, and then the, the mallards have two full whites. So 
that is always going to be a pain. I think I guess Bill Culler could be one as well in some instances. So, so the model duck, that's real hard. Yeah. It's you're, very few people are going to be able to identify that in flight. The oh, mallard and the black duck, female at least, both have the saddle. So mm-hmm. the orange bill with the black saddle. Yeah. A model duck hen doesn't have a saddle. She just has little black specks. And the older she gets, the blacker it'll become. But all the males have the same bill, that nice olive green, yellowish color, real pretty. All the drakes have that in all four species. Fantastic. Um, So moving into the next part we got, we're moving into basically the conservation section. I had real quick, I want to speak on that a little bit. So spoiler alert. At the Southern Roots Podcast, as Owen had pointed out, we're going to have an awesome person from UTEP will be joining us, hopefully, for a recording session as part of this mini-series. So y'all have got to stay tuned with that. We're going to have a, a big plug on that. We're and it's going to answer a whole genetics. lot of questions for us, yep. for sure. It's just This is just the tip of the iceberg, y'all. And, and those guys are doing some super cool research. Oh, it's like it was. It was starting when I was in Texas. I got to submit some birds to them. I got to collect some hybrids, et cetera, and send to him. I'm really looking forward to the results from his research. Like that is, that's going to be huge for the model duck population in Texas. So big teaser, y'all stay tuned, keep watching the show and uh, we'll keep moving on this conversation. So moving from this conversation into model duck conservation now. All right. So we talked about there been on the decline. I mean, it just blew, it's still blowing my mind. I keep on going back to that. We had a hundred K in 2008, theoretically, roughly. And we have 18 K this past January. That's that is still blowing my mind. So my main question is conservation time. What can hunters do here? Across, I guess across any of the Gulf states, but mainly Louisiana hunters, since that's in our backyard, what can we do to improve the situation for model ducks? So as far as conservation of the species goes, we're obviously trying the regulation change to do a little bit while we do habitat work. That's the tr- key caveat here is we're not just changing the regulations to say, this is all we're going to do. We're pairing this with hundreds of thousands of dollars that LDWF, Ducks Unlimited, Delta Waterfowl, et cetera, are spending on model ducks on the coast of Louisiana, two projects that I'm kind of in charge of. But so first off, model ducks are really resilient birds. They're really quick learners. That's why the 15-day season close is so important. As you've said numerous times, they're so wary of calls, wary of decoys, The main thing that I can say that hunters can do is eliminate illegal harvest. Like I've, I've teal hunted in Louisiana and Texas. I've hunted in the marsh in both States. It is just mind blowing how many model ducks I see fall during teal season. I'm talking where I used to hunt in Texas. You'd be sitting at one spot. You can see four other spots. And you're just watching model ducks fall like crazy. Oh, my gosh. And getting marsh stomped. Like, my favorite thing to do when I worked there was hunt and then take my dog to the other hunt markers and go find the model ducks that they tossed in the grass. Like, I can't tell you how many times we did that. Just trying to teach people, hey, this is a model duck. Like, we we had a hunter come in one time with one model duck and five blue wings. He was like, this is the mama teal. And these are the baby teal. Oh my god! <laughs> Please stop. A little bit. Yeah, I guess. Actually, I guess I kinda, actually, right. yeah. I'm actually in, in lovingly impressed. Was he a new hunter? Obviously, so. like plead ignorance that way, right? Like that's the way to do it, I guess. I've heard so many to. stories <laughs> about about similar thing. Like my grandpa in law, 
um, over in Cameron Marsh. She grew up hunting there, like since he was like in diapers. He talks about how they would have like game warden, like it's one road in, one road out of this marsh, and he would just check all the vehicles on the way out. And the guy's one hunter gets out of his truck. He has a story of it's like, this is the biggest teal I've ever killed. And the game warden's <laughs> like, no, but that is the smallest model duck I've ever seen. Here you are, <laughs> sir. <laughs> but yeah, just just identifying the birds before you shoot, especially if you're a knowledgeable hunter hunting with new hunters. It's so easy in teal season to think, oh, the only duck down here is teal. But you have model ducks. You have wood ducks. I've seen shovelers. Shovelers, my shovelers yeah. I've shovelers seen. are super hard. I've almost made that mistake. Oh, that, at that, that time I, of the I year? That, oh, Because they're all, yeah, everybody's, you know, nobody's in full plumage yet. And right? they got the blue patches on the yeah. wings. And they come the wings just look as many wings Almost sizes. identical. Oh, yeah. The, the rachis on the primaries is white on a shoveler, which is how I identify them, but... I also get paid to identify ducks oh, by the wings. Is so that, that's the yeah. middle of the feather, and then the little pieces <laughs> okay. come off. All right. But so that's different. And then of course the bill. But man, if it's low light, if it's decoying over your shoulder, and you got to come up and shoot, it's really hard. My problem is with it is that usually if I find shovelers in teal season, they're with teal. Oh yeah, right. Like they're in the. They're, I could pick one bird out of a flock of like fifteen teal, and it could be a spoon. Right. So that's always been my concern with it. But you know, to backtrack off of that though. You talked about, you know, being experienced hunters and doing that. And that's part of the stewardship of what we have to do as veteran hunters, right, is um, I think you have to take some degree of responsibility for the new hunters in your blind, right, to teach them the right ways of doing things, not just talking about uh, illegal harvest, but making sure they know what they're shooting at, identifying birds, um, taking shots that they know are high percentage shots. I think it's the big thing, right, because like a lot of the time I you've hunted wood ducks as a kid. I hunted wood ducks as a kid, too. Passing shots are king right there. So it was hard for me when I came out to a blind setting with decoys where I wasn't trying to shoot a bird 30, 40 yards high. I was just passing over and not decoy. Mm-hmm. Right? And that was difficult for me. You, We've you, talked about that before. You, you still my, hate it for me, yeah. Because my motto, like, I want to own them ducks. I grew up right. – I, I didn't grow up duck hunting. I mean, I found this hobby in college loosely, and then I married into it hard, and now I fell in love with it. And I mean, I met Ryan at Public Land. I met Owen Public Banding pretty much, and – like I always joked with Ryan, like Ryan, I want to have them cupped up. I want to shoot them feet down in my decoys. And Ryan's o- and Ryan's over there, like pow pow. Like oh, them like, two, them two weren't stopping. Ryan, what here, you doing? What thing. you doing, like, Ryan? There's and days he taught me how to pass shoot. You taught me how yeah. to pass shoot. Then there's days that like it drives me crazy on some days. Right? Like we went to White Lake this year, and White Lake. We should have asked this question ahead of time if they've been decoying or not. We did. Right. That was the one question that we had for the biologist that we did not question. We did not ask. No bird decoy except for one speck. And I can't call specks, Owen. I can't do it. Tried, right? I made enough. Two or dead. Two or dead. I made, I made enough goose-like sounds to convince one of these specks to, to drop. Everything else. We had pintails, teal. There was a beautiful lesser scop that came through that I was like, I'm just going to freaking roll that bird. I missed, but that's the point. Point is, is like I just watched bird after bird just go. I was like, no, no. We can have at least a two-man right now, fellas. Let's open up, right? And then as soon as we started so, to open up, they'd stop they'd, going. They'd stop going. Yeah, I think we had like uh, – we shot one speck that was passing through maybe about 40 yards high. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll catalog this hunt later yeah. for sure. So kind of – Yeah, identifying the birds that you're trying to shoot. I've duck hunted the marsh most of my life now, and I have thrown up my gun on model ducks. Like anybody can do it. Absolutely. They come over your shoulder at low light. It's a duck. You're going to come up and then realize that it's a model duck. Nothing wrong with putting your gun on your shoulder. Just don't pull the trigger. Yep. Like just right. 
don't don't shoot if you don't know what it is. That that would the illegal harvest of model ducks is a huge detriment as far as what hunters can do. If you can stop that, if we didn't have another model duck shot illegally in the state of Louisiana, the population would go up. Mm-hmm. I just can, that simple. I without a doubt. I one hundred percent believe that. Because I think trying to think of the it's so hard because they're so hard to differentiate in the air. The only way I've done it during teal season is literally like, okay, I know it's not a teal, let it land. And usually they're kind of, they're kind of in family groups at that time. So like, they will be like five or two three. to five. Yeah. It'll be like, or sometimes two, sometimes they're only paired up, but then I will have noticed just like with mojos and spinning wing decoys, it's always the female coming in first. So it's, I think it's the, in my personal experience, the young immature female leading the pack in, if it yeah. is a group of five. So odds are you're taking a female out of potential breeding habit. May have only been alive for this point three shoot, months, three months yeah. maybe. So it's that is so this makes sense now that a legal harvest you're going to probably save a higher proportion of females, in my personal opinion, with this objective evidence. And see, like I don't have the same teal subjective evidence. Sorry, subjective evidence. Like I'm a large man and I don't want to sit out in the marsh in 90 degree weather with mosquitoes, so I just don't go to teal season very often. But like I'm used to seeing model bucks and pairs, right? So, like, that off the bat tells you right then. They're like, like, you talked about shooting mots, like, in pairs. You think they were the mallards, but they're actually, yeah. sorry, the other way around. Like, that to me is a dead giveaway yeah. of mots. So, like, to see now that there'd be five, I'm like, oh, my God, do you know? I would. Ugh, I was so at a public land location in South Louisiana, and I had 10 come over me one time. Maybe, like, I guess wing I, I've beat. seen big I, groups. I could, I could probably identify off a wing beat at this point, being so The wing beat, and like, then one key identifier is... Super dark body and almost iridescent white under yeah, wings. The white, the white under the wings is so bright compared to any other duck. I've never seen a duck with that bright of a underwing. That makes sense. It's a good knowledge there. So we talked about what hunters can do. It's basically to summarize that. Quick summarize: follow the regs in the illegal harvest. Identify your ducks. Don't shoot them during teal season. We've kind of hammered that into play. And you talked about the other piece of the puzzle uh, previously about how the reason why we've gone from. 100k to 18k roughly is habitat loss so there's anything as hunters can do or as we can do in as Louisiana citizens to kind of help the habitat loss part of the equation so there's two main habitats that are crucial to model duck populations growing right a model duck can live multiple years but if it's not reproducing it's not doing any good to anybody so Nesting habitat and broodering habitat are kind of the limiting factors. Think of it like this. You ever seen a barrel with the planks that make it up, the barrel staves? A barrel is only going to hold as much water as the shortest stave. Okay. So if you cut one six inches lower, that's where all the water is going to come out. Right. That's what's limiting how much you can hold. Broodering and nesting habitat are way shorter than the rest. And so you're just losing potential birds because they're not able to find quality nesting. So they fail at nesting or they find good nesting that's not close to broodering habitat and then they can't raise the broods that they've made. Um, so habitat loss and degradation are the two main factors affecting those um, habitats. And I'll talk more about that in just a second. All right. So moving on. So I know there's different societies for just about everything. You know, you got all the different bird societies. Is there a specific conservation or preservation society organization specific for model ducks? No. Okay. So there's nothing specific to model ducks, but there doesn't need to be. So Ducks Unlimited, uh, especially Delta Waterfowl is helping me with a couple projects right now, but Ducks Unlimited 
really puts a lot of money on the ground, at least in the line of work that I do. I spend a ton of Ducks Unlimited dollars on the mm-hmm. coast. They have done so much work on like Marsh Island, Rockefeller, White Lake, Biloxi, Paso. Like they've spent millions and millions of dollars on habitat down here in Louisiana. We're not going to get into the whole northern thing with Ducks Unlimited, but we spend just as much money in Louisiana from Ducks Unlimited as anywhere else. The Prairie Potholes in Louisiana, there's so much money spent by Ducks Unlimited. Um, One of the two programs that I'm about to talk about is administered by Ducks Unlimited. And then, like I said, Delta Waterfowl is working with me right now to fund a pilot study on point of shin doing some artificial nesting structures. There's also, we talked about this a little bit over dinner, but doing a little artificial nest structure study to see if there's something we can do on lands that are too small to generate enough grassland to make nesting habitat. So you've all heard of hen houses, right? Delta Mm -hmm. waterfowl Mm -hmm. pushes those a good bit. We're trying to put some of those out, some nest cones, which is basically a hen house with the end caved in to make it kind of dark in the Mm -hmm. back, which model ducks that every nest I've ever seen is in a tunnel basically, and then a basket with a canopy. Those have worked really well for mallards, and since model ducks are a mallard-like species, we're going to see which of the three works best. That's going on. I know in Florida they're also doing one. I saw it on Instagram the other day. They're putting a ton of hen houses around Lake Okeechobee. No idea who's doing that, how many it is, and what the success rate is, but I would I would like to follow up with that at some point. Um, but one of the big reasons that I got this job in Louisiana is because of my modeled up experience, my expertise, you could call it like that's what I've worked with. So one of my main tasks was to establish a modeled up conservation program for the department. And I worked with people inside the department and Ducks Unlimited to make two separate private land programs that should help model up populations across the state. Of course, of course, money's always a limiting factor. So that's what I mean, we're only able to put as much money as we can into these, but with what we have, we're going to do as much as we can. Um, The first project I want to talk about is called the Louisiana Model Duck Project, LMP for short. Um, It's administered by DU, and it's focused on the brood ring aspect of habitat. So what brood ring habitat is, just real quick, you're talking a 50-50 mix of open water and emergent vegetation. Think of it like... I don't know, a, a pasture with trees in it. You want shade, right? You want cover for those birds to get away from predators, both annual plants like duck potato and then cattail. I always thought about like for quail where like you'll need a CRP field on the edge of like a cornfield so they can go to feed. And then if there's something dangerous right there, a predator in the area, we're running right back into the cutover. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you, that's what you're thinking. And also the, the 50-50 mix Model ducks, especially in the broodering phase, they need a lot of protein, which comes from invertebrates. They're building muscle. They're building feathers. They're starting to fledge. They, they're not eating seeds. They will, of course, but that's not what they're focused on. They're, they're really trying to eat bugs to grow that. So that's what we're looking for. Think of like a rice field or a vegetated marsh ecosystem. That's, that's kind of what it is. This program is incentive-based. So it's not just, hey, you need to manage for model ducks. Mm -hmm. We come in, we work with the landowner to try to build a habitat management plan for them. We cost share the management activities that include disking, mowing, spraying, burning, and then pumping or holding water. And it's kind of really crucial to have that in a certain time period when they're hatching birds, right? So February 1st 
which is the day after duck season ends typically. This year it won't be, but that way they don't release the water that they've held during duck season. February 1st through July 30th, which is about the end of the broodering time. There's there's a few re-nesting attempts that'll still have broods, but the vast majority of them are done by that point. Um, so we want them to hold water that long. We want it to be 6 to 18 inches deep, preferably the 6 to 12 inches, but water fluctuates. You get a rainfall event. We didn't want to kind of push our landowners into so tight of a bubble that they couldn't meet the objective. So we, we made it a little bit bigger. Um, and the most important thing with this is it has to be in proximity to nesting cover. You can't have one without the other. You can't right. raise a brood if you don't have somewhere to hatch eggs and you can't hatch eggs if you don't have that habitat. So think of it like uh, putting a sugar cane mill in the middle of Deritter. Right. It wouldn't work. There's, there's no cane near there. It's all pine trees. Just like you build sawmills in the middle of the pine country, you got to put the habitat in the right place. The second program is called the Coastal Grassland Restoration Incentive Program, and that's a mouthful. Sea grip for short. So that's administered by the Gulf Coast Joint Venture. Um, we partner with them to basically work on that nesting habitat. And what we're looking there, there for there is kind of your upland prairie. Think of your quail habitat. Think of CRP. It's it's very similar to that. So we took the federal program EQIP and just funded it with state dollars. One thing that I've found in my time working in this field is there's a lot of landowners who are really hesitant to sign a contract with the federal government. Yeah. So we did this with state dollars. So they sign a five-year contract with us and then they can get out of it. Right. So they're basically managing this habitat for five years, hopefully longer. Hopefully we can re-sign them up, but that way they can get out if they want, instead of a 30-year easement. We wanted to make them feel more comfortable if they like the program, then we can push them into either EQIP, which is the federal, or just re-sign them up with CGRIP. But they're the same program, just funded differently. And what, what we do there is we write a prescription for the landowner and help them pay for, like, fire breaks, fencing, cattle grazing, uh, not to hay their pasture June 1st mm, and yeah. cut over all those model duck nests. So. Yeah. Anything that helps promote good nesting habitat and the habitat staying on the ground, that program will help to pay for that. Okay, so that's, that's and you're talking you're talking sixty to seventy percent reimbursement. So yeah, wow. the landowner has to put in a little bit, and we're not you're not going to pull up to some guy that's grazing a hundred head on his ranch and say, "Hey, we want you to pull fifty of those head off." We know all you care about is making money, but we want you to do. That's not what we're there for. We're there to find landowners who are conservation-minded, who care about model ducks and want to do the habitat work, but the habitat work is so expensive. So we're there to kind of cut the cost on that and help them out and accomplish both of our goals at the same time. And you think about it in the terms, like you're talking about a five-year easement instead of 30. Like 30 years, is that could be somebody's entire farming career, right? Like right. Five years makes it a lot more attractive than the fact that, you know, if it doesn't work out for your property and yourself, you know, you could back out. So – I feel like those those shorter time frames for you guys are really gonna be a little more attractive to landowners. Yeah, and we're not we're not like I said, we're not coming in saying this is what you need to do. Right. This is what it needs to look like. We walk in and say, What are your goals? Here's how we can help you accomplish that. Right. I'm working with a landowner right now that he wants to do all this work, but he needs help paying for it. So that's what we're able to step in and do. So real quick, plug in those in. So is it simply, is if you're a landowner, 
would you could you Google Louisiana model duck project and could you Google the C grip and you, you could find ways to apply if you were interested? You can definitely find the C grip website. That's pretty easy. Um, just Google it. And then the Louisiana model duck project. I'm not sure if we have a website yet, but I know I can send you a link and the papers for that. You can basically call me or ducks unlimited or the or joint Gulf coast joint venture tongue twister, call them, ask for the program. They'll get you in contact with the right person, but the easiest way is just to call me. All right. Owen, that is absolutely fascinating stuff with those two projects. So how is all this funded? So like I said, this, these two programs are funded by LDWF. We're the ones that put the money up and it's funded 100% through the Louisiana duck stamp. So similar to the federal duck stamp, which pays for acquisition, management, all sorts of stuff with the federal duck stamp, the Louisiana duck stamp goes into account that LDWF uses to help with projects on WMAs, you know, putting in pumps or levees or water control structures. And then we designated um, some money for both of these programs this year to fund. We're hoping to get some private sponsors, get some oil companies or somebody to like pitch in some extra money and grow us. Um, we're also asking some other conservation agencies and groups to bring some money to the table, but right now it's just LDWF. And then the joint venture and Ducks Unlimited help facilitate the two programs. But if uh, one of the other things hunters can do, like we were talking about earlier, buy your Louisiana duck stamp. Even if you don't collect them, even if you don't care about them, if you want to help with model duck conservation, that's a really easy way to do it. Even if you have a lifetime license from Louisiana, which bars us, or I'm not, I have one myself. I'm not, I don't have to have a license or a waterfowl stamp, but you're right. I think, you know, if you're down for the cause of this. Yeah. I mean, I work for the state, which equivalates to being broke, <laughs> but I still buy like three or four federal duck stamps a year yeah like that so that's the really cool thing about being a duck hunter and being a an activist is like we pay to play yep we the reason that ducks and this is a really interesting fact that if you don't know waterfowl are one of the only stories of birds where the populations has gone up in the last 50 years you know what that is because of hunters because we buy shotguns we buy shotgun shells we buy decoys waders all of that stuff has an excise tax that goes into a, what's called the Pittman-Robertson Act that then funds all this wildlife management. Duck hunters play a huge role with Ducks Unlimited donating, Delta Waterfowl, um, duck stamps, etc. All that money that they spend every year is real-time habitat on the ground that creates ducks. So it that's one of the really cool things is when you buy one of those duck stamps, you can tell yourself, like, I'm contributing I'm putting back what I'm taking away. Absolutely. And as a duck hunter, that should be your number one mentality is not just take, take, take. Like you, you've got to help the species. You've got to help the conservation. So buy a couple extra duck stamps, both federal and state, if you want to help model ducks. So we'd appreciate it. Awesome. Really cool to collect too, by the way. Yeah. I say, but I'm on on eBay now and like I'm finding, so I don't, I don't get like the super fancy ones. I found ones already signed for like $2, Mm -hmm. but I'm collecting like from the sixties and seventies now on federal. Yeah. I'm working on my federal collection and then I'm really mad at my mom. She bought me one of those framed prints from the Louisiana duck stamp from like the nineties. 
So now I have to start my collection. I've got to get the other 70 or however many there are. It's like, come on, Mom. Wow. Um, So we mentioned the Louisiana duck stamp, how that directly funds this. Is there anything from the federal duck stamp that splits off in this besides the Pittman-Robertson Act? You get a piece of that through wildlife fisheries, I guess? Yeah, so the the Pittman-Robertson is federal money that the state has to match. So for every dollar we put in, we get $3 back from the federal government. So all the hunting licenses that are sold, duck stamp, et cetera, that's what we use to match the federal dollars. So if you spend $100 on a sportsman's license, that turns into $400 for wildlife management. You think about that over all the licenses that are sold, it really helps out with management. And then I know on a national scale, I don't know how, I don't have the data locally, but like hunter numbers have been in decline. Very much so. I think COVID, we had a slight bump, mainly in fishing sales. I remember seeing a stat from wildlife fishing That's on just that. A but weird time though for everybody. Like everybody right, was right. like, <laughs> for Correct. So I know recently too, within the last five years, probably last two, Instead of there's also like, for example, to go on WMA, you need what's called like a Louisiana wild stamp. Mm-hmm. Does that help any of the funds like the Louisiana duck stamp does for this? Or that, so, yeah, the that goes directly into the WMA management. Okay. So you, what you buy helps whatever it's for. So a WMA stamp helps you with WMA's management. Duck stamp helps with waterfowl. The turkey stamp, I don't know if we have, a, I know Arkansas has a turkey stamp that goes directly into turkey management. So you can, if you're not interested in all of it, you can specifically put your dollars towards one particular species group. Sidebar on that, though. It's time to think about a turkey stamp for Louisiana as well. If that's the case, they can use that. For sure. That's another story for another day. So we talked about the funding, talked about the projects, and you mentioned how you fly aerial surveys and see these uh, model ducks on the nest, that kind of thing. So go into a little bit of that and through the conservation story with that piece. Yeah, so... LDWF does a couple different things to monitor populations. We do the aerial surveys, um, the five times during the year counting. That does not give you, okay, there's 20,731 ducks. It's an estimate. It's it's not a census. You're estimating, and then that's multiplied by an expansion factor based on how much area we flew over, et cetera. So that's just looking at trend data. You can see over the long term whether the population is going up or down. The other thing that we do is we do mark recapture, so basically banding. We capture model ducks during the summer, and then we look at their survival. Um, That first duck season, especially with juvenile birds, they're much more susceptible to hunting. Um, We look at long-term survival. We look at sex ratio, male to female, and then age ratio, adult to juvenile. And that gives us kind of a idea of what the population's doing. If you have seven adults to one juvenile, you can guess what that means. There's no reproduction. The population's not growing. If there's seven juveniles to one female, population's growing. So we can kind of get that same trend data from that. Um, one of the interesting things about model ducks, we talked about how they're non-migratory, right? Mm-hmm. So you can band a mallard in northern Canada and shoot it in south Texas. Like, they migrate a long way. Interesting statistic, 83% of model ducks are harvested within 60 miles of where they were captured. They do not go far at all. Basically, you can think of it like the same zip code. They never leave that. They never cross the county line, especially. We call them parish. Yeah. By the way, Owen. Oh, so, yeah. you know. But like, it's kind of hard to cross the parish line when you're in Calcasieu or Cameron. Like they're huge. <laughs> right. They're, they're some of the biggest parishes ever. Um, but that all gives us kind of data to use in our our estimations and our management 
Um, and then, like we said, we fly the BPOP, and that gives us a breeding population, which helps us. That That's going to be the lowest population there is. September is going to be the highest because you've got what is left after winter and then the production. Those are going to be the two extremes of the of the counts. Okay. Real quickly, to go back to not the how flying the aerial survey, it's not a census, it's an estimate. So I'm trying to think. It, it took me a while to realize that, and I bet a lot of hunters just in general think, of, oh, they're literally counting every individual duck, like kind of like the census where you go door to door and someone counts how many people are in your household. Even parts of the census are now estimated because mm-hmm. it's it's it's, it's going to be impossible. So the way I always kind of got it taught and think about it is if you have like the get the guessing game of like you have a big clear jar at the fair and it's like guess how many marbles or M and M's are in this jar and win a prize closest to the guess wins. I kind of got it taught like that, but you you can kind of like see the it's, outside. You see like okay, I see twenty five reds. I know roughly call reds mallards. I know if there's so many mallards based upon historical data, there's probably other populations that that intrinsically combines. And during nesting season, you have hens on the nest versus yeah. a pair is not. So if you count one, it counts as two. Realistically, mm-hmm. I know y'all do a little bit of. Yeah common sense so with that it's it's a little bit different than that in that we're not we're not flying the whole state we're flying transects so certain we're flying a straight line north to south and looking 250 meters to either side of the plane so there's a guy on the left and a guy on the right we count every duck in that 250 meters by 60 miles or however long that goes into an area that many mallards in this amount of area. And there's, we have what's called an expansion factor. So for Southwest one mallard equals like 30 something mallards in Southeast, our transects are a little bit farther apart. So it's a larger number. It's like 70 something mallards for one that we count. And that's just because we're not flying the whole area. We're flying a very small subset of the state and extrapolating that data. And that's the key there. And that expansion factor is based on historical data for the region in that area, right? Mm-hmm. So you're looking at habitat availability, the percentage of that habitat compared, like intermediate marsh compared to brackish marsh. If you're counting them in intermediate, we separate that out and can kind of tell stuff. Um, you're looking at long-term trends. They did visual correction factors back in the day to make sure that we were counting an accurate number of birds. Um there's all sorts of sciencey stuff that goes into that. And yeah, so you pilot the helicopter that goes in after they can get, they can hover, it can get more. Yeah, so, so the helicopter does is the hardest to count because literally you have to almost touch them before they get. Yeah, off they the don't flush. They like all other birds seem to flush when they hear the plane coming. Model ducks, even in the helicopter, when we're twenty feet above them, they're just looking up at you like, uh, "Go away!" Like they don't. They don't. That's part of like their their fight or flight, fight or flight defense where they might just run into the brush. Yeah, right under the, under the marsh instead. Like, how many times have I lost model ducks that I saw swimming? I'm like, okay, they never took off. Well, no, they just went right back on the island. Right. I've seen literally one will get down where other species is like you can shoot a teal in the marsh area that I hunt in the pond, and it will be five football fields away, and the dog will go track it. Whereas model duck, it'll hit the bank, it'll be in that spot. I've literally almost ran over a wounded model duck. Trying to get him in the boat. When I moved the boat back, the dog jumped and got it. Because mm-hmm. literally it stood right there and took the boat impact and then it buried itself in the grass. Yeah. They rely on their camouflage so Smart, much. Smart, man. Smart. Yeah, you can't see them in a shadow. Mm-mm. They're the boogeyman. All right. So we got that kind of clarified up. So moving on um, to basically 
we talked a brief discussion on the conservation. We're gonna, it's so deep and fascinating to me, Ryan. If you're cool with that in the future, maybe have Owen come back on. We're going to do a whole separate discussion on these Louisiana Mildlife Project and the Coastal Grasslands uh, Restoration Incentive Program, the Sea Grip. I would like to hear a whole bunch of details about how land managers can probably get better involved in that mm-hmm. besides just Googling the name Absolutely. and contacting people. And then and maybe have some, how it works. have some data on how it's working, how it's improving habitat, maybe uh, maybe post some pictures on the Instagram page yep. of oh, yeah. habitat that's changed because of those programs. That's an hour discussion in itself, just talking about these two programs and what you know the volunteers and civilians can do to, to help. Right. So kind of recapping this section here, buy your Louisiana duck stamp, stay licensed. Uh, all your dollars really go to help conservation, and we can do a lot to change model duck. Now, if people want to reach out, get in touch with you, Owen, how can they do that? So the easiest way is my phone number. It's 337-735-8691. Um, or if you've got a little bit longer question, it, you can email me. It's obest, uh, could be worse, but it's best, obest <laughs> at WLF dot la dot gov um, or you can just look up the secret website and my contacts on there as well so and then i'm sure y'all post it on the instagram and the blog and all that for Absolutely. sure awesome yeah, any any questions y'all can holler at me be glad to answer them all righty y'all so thanks again for tuning into the episode of the southern roost we're gonna be signing off y'all have a great evening thanks for tuning in to another episode of the southern roost the podcast show for the flyways and highways collective Connect with us by searching Flyways and Highways on Instagram or Facebook. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review on wherever you get your podcast from. It really does make a difference. Tell a friend about our show. Even better, bring someone new into our beloved duck culture. Till next time, this is the Southern Roost, signing off. <laughs>